Hi, everyone. It's great to be with you. My name is Matt. And uh, before I jump in here, just as some of you know, I had my six-month um, follow-up appointment up at Mayo Clinic this week and just got back. And just a brief update, because I know you care, and I've had a lot of people ask me about that, so I'll just say it here all at once. Um, nothing too unexpected. They repeated some EMGs and um, some other tests and just essentially confirmed my ALS uh, diagnosis and that it is, as they kind of thought, progressing relatively slowly. So really grateful for that. Let's keep that going. Thank you. So thank you for your concern, and I just really appreciate your, all of that and your prayers, of course. So um, thank you. We are ready for week two of Seeking Shalom. And last Sunday, we had the privilege of having Sean Duncan here, who wrote the materials that many of our groups are, are using for the next several weeks. And he really started us off maybe in a different place than you expected, which was, what's the big picture? Where are we going? Not just us as a church, but like the, the narrative arc of God's work in the world, redemptive history. And I thought he did a great job making that point because you got to begin with the end in mind, as he quoted. We got to know where we're going um, or we're going to end up all over the place. And so just a reminder, the starting point for this is that the biblical story is not a God who doesn't care about the physical world, who only cares about the soul, which then leads to disembodied spirituality, which then leads to the only thing that really matters is my personal morality so that I can go to the good place when I die. God does care about all that stuff. But the biblical story in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation is an embodied spirituality. The vision of, of Scripture begins in a garden in Genesis and ends in a city. Uh, we get this word shalom from the Old Testament, and it's about wholeness. Um, it's about restoration. It's about the flourishing of humanity, of, of societies, of cultures. That's where it's going. Jesus is, is interested in... He says the phrase, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, new heaven, new earth, uh, embodied um, physical creation. So reimagining our response then to poverty, we, we got to start with where we're going. We know that in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, God gives us a new imagination and empowers us to then go out in cooperation with each other. And the invitation is that we would cooperate and co-create with God toward his mission, toward what he's up to in the world. So with that as our foundation, we're almost ready to start getting more practical, but I want to offer a few, I guess, of my underlying assumptions, a framework to make sure that we're all on the same page. One thing I want to be very, very clear about is I believe most, if not all of us here in this room, care deeply about people experiencing material poverty, about the oppressed, the vulnerable. You care. I assume that's part of, of why you're here or why you're going through uh, this group experience. We don't want people in our community, in our world, to suffer the effects of poverty. We don't think God wants that either. He invites us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done here. Not just in my heart, but in the world around me, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our world. Most of us, when we see someone in need, our hearts go out. And I just want to say that's a good thing. 
uh, that you respond with compassion. We imagine what it must be like to be in that person's shoes, and we, we want to do something to help. So keep doing that is, is point number one. Um, if you're like me at all, though, perhaps you look around, and if you've done any of this work or observed organizations, and you've been to the fundraisers, and you've done all these things, and it, it's good, important work, but you look around and you go, is it really moving the needle? Is it really solving the problem or you know, moving us in the right direction, uh, or is it not? And so again, we're asking, how do we help? Um, how do we co-create with God in our neighborhoods, in our city, in ways that are lasting, in ways that are, are actually dignifying to, to others? I, I also want to confess here that this stuff is, is massively intimidating to me. I don't actually know what I'm doing. Uh, I have all kinds of beliefs and assumptions and biases that aren't helpful that I don't even know that I have at this point. And so as we've been saying, one of the challenges here is we need to get a lot more comfortable talking not just about out there, not just about certainly not those people or those issues, or the, but also in here. And where do I need to turn the spotlight or where does God want to turn the spotlight on me and cause some discomfort because perhaps there are some things, some things I need to learn or change. Again, it's not about your heart or my heart. You love God. You love people. We're all trying. The question I want to come back to, and we'll do this again, is am I loving my neighbor as myself? And you hear that and you go, well, yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, I think so. But I want to push on that because I'm convinced there's more there that we need to reflect on and, and perhaps change. Sean, when he was here at the workshop last Saturday, he, he kind of made a few comments about how our language is pretty revealing around the issue of poverty. Um, and our language matters. And he said a few things, like almost throwaway lines, and I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely have said that, or I think that. It, you know, it, it shined a spotlight on me. And so just a couple of things I've been thinking about. Um, you know, in my earlier years, for sure, I was a part of neighborhood outreaches to poorer neighborhoods. And I went, and my goal is to, to be Jesus with an ulterior motive that these people, like, come to my church. Um, or I have this belief, if, if we be Jesus, then people will see that, and they'll be compelled, and then they'll become Christians. Again, our language reveals a lot. Uh, that sentiment that we're supposed to be Jesus, there is some truth in that, but it completely ignores one key fact, and that is when Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats, his point is actually not that we should be Jesus. And the problem is we like, we like that. That makes us feel good. It also happens to set up a, a dichotomy where we're up here being Jesus to those down here that we're quote unquote serving. Um, see the long, sordid history of the phrase white savior complex, and it leads to all kinds of stuff. But Jesus' actual point is not that when you, when you love or you, you reach out, it's not that you're being Jesus. What's his point? You're actually encountering Jesus in the poor, in the mark. You're actually encountering Jesus, which is a, there's a world of difference between those two lenses. I will admit um, that I have a tendency to look at poorer neighborhoods in our city, basically through the lens of negative statistics, as if 
that tells the whole story. You know, these many people below a certain income level, these rates on addiction or illiteracy or the number of blighted homes, et cetera. And those stats may be helpful and they may be, you know, true um, and certainly help us identify the problem. I want to come back to this question, though. Am I loving my neighbor as myself with that approach? Um, little thought experiment. Imagine Ball State, their sociology department, selecting your neighborhood, sending a bunch of students with clipboards, and they do a several months long study that results in a 100-page report about all the problems in your neighborhood. This divorce rate, this percentage of closet addiction, um, how many hours people on your street watch TV every day, what your kids are dealing with, I mean, on and on. Again, that's nothing against Ball State, nothing against stats, nothing against sociology. I made all that up just now. But I would be like, I don't know about you, hey, hold on, who are you? And I'm not, like a, I'm not a problem, I'm not a, a statistic. Um, that doesn't feel very good. I think sometimes in our attempt to understand a problem which has its place, it also neglects the good that's happening, the things that we can celebrate. Let's push it a little farther. What if after that study, church groups started rolling in to your neighborhood in vans and just unloading and a bunch of people get out with matching t-shirts and they knock on your door and they say, what do you need? Do you need anything from me? Or even, can I pray for you? I mean, again, you might like that. I could tell you as a pastor, I certainly, I would, I would say, who are you? I'm not your special project because, again, there's something there's an up here, down here dynamic that if you're on the receiving end, doesn't feel that great. So again, even a question, do I love my neighbor as myself? It starts you know, generating all these questions. Um, even our language of serving other people, and that's biblical to a, a point, right? But it, it sets up this up here, down here mentality. That's a very different question than out of the context of genuine relationship asking, what are we going to create? together. So these are some of the things I want to kind of push out here. I also know for sure that I'm, I'm, we're going to make mistakes. Um, I've been exploring this really kind of from a safe distance for about 10 years now and reading books and learning from our, our friends, our partners like Food for the Hungry in Nicaragua. They're way ahead of us in a holistic, lasting, relationally honoring, dignifying approach. Learning from our friends like Neil Kring and Avondale Neighborhood and Joy Rediger and Urban Light CDC. We have people where I am learning from. The problem is, at this point, I know just enough to be, like, pretty dangerous. Um, so I'm pretty good at critiquing approaches that obviously don't work. Not so good at this point of offering helpful solutions. At which point you could ask, then, how are you supposed to lead us to a place you haven't been fully. Oh, maybe, Matt, you should wait till you figure this out and then open your mouth. To which I would say, well, where's the fun in that? <laughs> so I, I feel a little silly um, and, you know, out of my depth. In the words of Brene Brown, and I relate to this, and this is how I'm able to move forward today. I am a traveler, not a map maker. I am going down this path same as and with you. So my goal is to 
try and help us chart a course together, but I'm right here learning with you, and I just have the fun job of putting all of my ignorance on public display, which, come to think of it, is probably not any different than, than what I do normally on a regular Sunday. So I am asking, I guess, in a, in a maybe a unique way for your patience and grace, because here's the thing. One option for me is over here to say, this is too complicated. It's too nuanced. It's perhaps too political. And so therefore, I'm just going to do what I've done before, what you've probably heard before, and you come to church and we say, love God, love your neighbor, and we all leave going, that's a good point, we should do that, and we feel good about ourselves, but we don't actually do anything any differently, um, or at least I don't. When, um, so that's option one, and that, that's kind of boring. Option two is to risk pushing us into some uncomfortable territory, knowing, and I've already told you, I'm going to mess this up. So um, please bear in mind that for me right now, attempting to actually say something versus the other thing is going to require me to speak in generalities that, you know, and it's going to be very easy to say, what about this? What about that? What about it? So that's just where I'm at for the sake of time. Um, that said, if and when I do say something ignorant or uneducated or reveals me problem, please tell me. Please help me because I want to, I think we, we can and must do better, and so I'm open to that. And the last qualification I'll make, so I have to do this the rest of the series. If I sound like I've got a little bit of an edge to me, I'm not angry. I'm just, I'm passionate about this, and I, I want us, I want me to do better. And so maybe there's like a little jolt here or somewhere, but please know, I, you're a good person. I love you, you're compassionate, you care about people, so your, your, your character, my character, my heart, your heart is not at all in question. Okay. The goal in all of this as we reimagine our response toward poverty, and I hope this is as helpful and freeing to you as it is to me, the goal is healthier versus right. This is not about changing the wrong approach for the right approach. Just can we... Can we can we be healthier in this? There is no magic formula. There's no silver bullet to alleviate poverty. Sean at the workshop said, anytime someone comes up to him and says, I have the solution to poverty, it's, and then it's like a one thing, fill in the blank. Sean's like, what I know for sure is that they're wrong, uh, that it's not that simple. And so healthier versus right. And by the way, sometimes what's right in one situation in a neighborhood or context isn't right in another. Sometimes what's right Right now, things change and things have, and we got to move on and do something different. Healthier versus right. I would say even if we could get, as the result of this series and our groups and our dialogue, if we could have a 25%, let's put a percentage, healthier response to engaging poverty, we still have a ways to go. But I would celebrate that as a massive success. So I just say that, hopefully we can relax and just be open. All right, let's jump in. Here we go. Question. What are the reasons found in the Bible for why material poverty exists? Back to what I said earlier about language matters. Notice, you might be wondering, why did you say material poverty and not just poverty? Because isn't material implied? Yes and no. Again, the biblical vision of shalom is of of wholeness, it's of it, human flourishing. The opposite of that is a broken relationship with God, myself, others, creation, 
the world around me. There are other forms of poverty. There's relational poverty. Can you imagine if you showed up at like the soup kitchen to volunteer and instead of serving, they sat you down and they said, we want to do an intervention in your life. We think that you are relationally perhaps poor. We think that you, you pull in your driveway, you shut the door, you go to your living room, what's in the back of your house, and you, you know, on and on and on. Well, that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Jesus says, be careful because you can actually gain the whole world and lose your soul. So there's spiritual poverty. And so we make that distinction um, as much as we can. So reasons for, for material poverty in the Bible, I'm asking as an actual question, um, and beyond like, well, sin, or because of the fall. So yes, okay, but after that, what are some of the reasons, and I'll give you a hint, the Bible does not present one cause or solution to poverty. So if you're familiar at all with scripture, what might be a few reasons the Bible gives for why material poverty exists? Anyone have the courage to, to venture a guess or offer something? Greed. What's it? Greed. Greed. Famine. Famine. Indentured servitude. And I'm going to put some of these in a, in a broader heading, but you're, you're absolutely all these. Anything else? Loss of hope. Loss of husband. Yeah, you have family situations and then the, the insecurity that that brings. I heard something over here. Death. Yeah, it's, it's certainly tied up in there. Yeah. And let's walk through it just for a moment. And you, you've, you've gotten most of them. There's a couple you didn't say, and I'm not sure if it's because you didn't have the courage, but we'll see. Crisis. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So this is the idea that sometimes there's a famine, earthquake, like the floods that just happened recently in Libya, and people are, it's an emergency, and they need their basic human needs, food, clothing, shelter, if they're going to survive. Usually in the Bible, this is a short-term versus an ongoing perpetual thing. It's a season or, a, again, tied to a natural disaster or some other thing. Another really big reason that we start to get more central here, exploitation. James 5.4 says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. I was listening to a podcast recently where they were talking about this issue of employers not paying immigrant workers what they're owed. And you have these employers who are like, well, they're not here legally or they're, they're in some kind of legal gray area status-wise. And so therefore, I'm not going to pay them. And what are they going to do about it? And in many cases, these workers are owed tens of thousands of dollars in back pay. Well, there's a verse for this, right? It's, it's exploitation, and, and God has really strong words for that. It gets God's attention. Another, maybe perhaps the most central theme or reason for poverty in the Old Testament throughout Scripture is injustice, Isaiah 10. Woe to those who make unjust laws. So laws matter. To those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. I mean, on and on and on. You turn the, you look through the Old Testament. If you took out everything that had to do with systemic injustice, so not just individuals, but like things involving laws and society and norms and all these things, you take all that out, you, the Old Testament's like half as big. 
This is a very, very big theme. In my opinion, God reserves his harshest words to condemn this very thing. The other thing I'll point out about this is that, and I, I just want us to sit with this. We read all these passages, woe to you and, and, and your oppression and you're taking advantage of people and all that stuff. And we think, well, those people shouldn't really do that to those people. But that whole time, we're kind of back here and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hit us. Part of the reason that doesn't hit us is most of us in this room don't relate. It's written by people who are oppressed, written to oppressed people. And so it just kind of, kind of bounces off of us. And we come away from the Old Testament going, okay, but tell, tell me about my morality. And we read the whole thing and we go, well, can I get a tattoo or not? <laughs> and, we, and that's in there and go for it if you want to. But I'm just saying, we kind of miss the big picture. Um, there's marginalization. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. In the Bible, these, these, four character, these four groups of people, especially widow, fatherless, foreigner, the issue is not so much that they don't have the same material resources as someone else, although that's sometimes true. The issue is about access. The issue is about being disconnected relationally um, from society because they're, they're a leper or they're a Samaritan or whatever it might be. Um, Walter Brueggemann says, the widow, orphan, and immigrant lack a voice in the management of social power. They don't have the same amount of seats at the table that some of us, um, the privilege that some of us enjoy. So here's the big three so far, exploitation, injustice, marginalization. And again, it seems like the Old Testament is concerned and the New Testament as well with some structural things. So injustice at a structural, systemic level, not just at like, you took my thing and I'm mad at you and I do this, like not a personal thing only. Think about the issue and I'd, I'd be so fascinated how the Bible would speak to our current issues because it's not afraid to go there um, to get quote unquote political. I mean, it's involving everything in society, which politics is a part of that. Take something like generational wealth, if you've heard that phrase. And the idea being the number one thing that we pass down wealth-wise from one generation to the next is actually tied to our, our property. That's usually our biggest asset. Well, you do a little bit of research and you, you kind of do some reading on the history of redlining in our city. Whole neighborhoods were African-Americans, like you have to live here. And, and even stuff not that long ago, not too much before I was born, rules that kept black people from living in certain neighborhoods, owning homes. In certain, it's like you can read it online or, um, or even owning homes at all. Think about the effects of that, of, of what that enables you to pass on and the next generation to start in a different place. My family's not rich necessarily, relative term, um, but we have land and property that's been in our family for generations. When my grandparents die, they will pass on this, this farm and this, the acreage and all the stuff that they bought in the 1950s for $735. It's now worth half a million dollars. So there's some time elements to this. And it, again, we're all created equally for sure. It's my opinion. This is Matt talking. So if you need to, you know, to leave, just my opinion. I don't think we all have the same opportunities. And this is what I think Scripture begins to speak out. You think about zoning laws and access to health care and public policy and the ways 
tax dollars get funneled into more affluent school systems and away from, I mean, I could go on and on. And like I said, I'm, I'm trying to learn. Here's one the Bible mentions that maybe you thought of, but you got a little bit nervous. A reason for poverty. There is something about our choices. Uh, Proverbs 21 says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to po- poverty. This idea that choices often have consequences, whether it's, you know, really poor financial decisions that wreck you, um, could be the, ch- the early choices that lead to addiction, but then the addiction takes over and takes everything from there. Um, I want to push this, though, a little bit farther. Just looking at what the Bible says, what about laziness? Come on. Proverbs 10.4, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. In spite of what I showed you about the earlier list being the majority of the, the reasons, this is the one I heard the most about growing up and you still hear about today. In fact, maybe the verse that you learned as a kid and I learned as a kid, and we all know it, God helps those who help what? Great verse, not actually in the Bible. Again, that kind of works its way into our minds and how we view the world. And you drive by somebody standing at the intersection with a sign, and someone in the car says, or you think, economy's pretty good right now, unemployment's pretty low. They look able-bodied. Why don't they get a job? And of course, that's not to mention if there's mental issues, disabilities, or if there's hidden disabilities or other things we may not be aware of. You put all that against the backdrop of our history as a nation and how we got here, and this is the land of opportunity. This is the land where you make your dreams come true, and we overlook a lot of other factors at play. What I want to say about this Proverbs deal is, first of all, this is a proverb, which means it's a general wisdom saying. It's not meant to be applied to every situation all the time. Case in point, I bet you know some people you would say are lazy who are not poor. See, we already just, we already just dismantled the whole thing. Um, Paris Hilton. I know you knew that I was going to bring that up. Um, I'm sure she's very smart, and I'm sure she's a great business person who works very, very hard. I don't want to take anything away from her. But when your dad owns a global empire of properties and hotels and all that stuff, she can be as lazy as she wants, and she's got nothing to worry about. So with that in mind, I think we overlook who wrote this. Who wrote this? Anybody? King Solomon, the guy who was a thousand times richer than Paris Hilton, who, by the way, could hardly say that his story is a rags-to-riches, self-made trillionaire story. He inherited the throne, the kingdom from his father, David. He had it handed to him on a silver plate, which means we might all be equal. We don't all have the same opportunities. He's starting in a, he's starting in a different place than I am, for sure. In some ways, I read this like, like Solomon going, look, all I got to do is work hard and not mess it up because that'll be embarrassing, right? Um, I do find it worth reflecting on that the, like the one book in the Old Testament we most relate to, it's not written by oppressed people to oppressed people. It's written by a rich person 
I'm just here to ask questions, okay? Just here to ask questions and I get to leave, so not really. I'll be back. Um, so starting point. There is no one reason, there's no one cause, there's no one solution for poverty. It's a complex issue with overlapping parts. Um, I was in a conversation a couple years ago with um, some folks at Community Foundation and United Way, and we're having this conversation where someone else, an influential political person in our city, we're talking about poverty and was like, you know, look, out on the south side, out on Cowan Road, there are these factories that are employing people, and they can't get enough workers, and they're paying $16 an hour. So, like, what's everyone's problem? Let's just get the job speech. And the people, the people I was talking to very thoughtfully pushed back, and were just like, well, look, there's more to it than that. There's transportation. There's, if you're a single parent, what about child care? Then you're paying $8 an hour to get your, have your, and access to child care, um, or let's say you start a job in a professional environment as a receptionist and you have no money and you need $500 to buy clothes that your job, you see how it's more complex? Uh, United Way did a study years ago that said, and I hope I'm getting this right, that one of the key determining factors in someone in material poverty getting out of that or, or, or changing or experiencing something different is are they able to read proficiently by third grade. So you could say, okay, well, let's just do that. Let's just get people reading. And, and you, yeah, but if you back up, well, there's a play. What is the role of, of early childhood education? Because you can't wait till third grade to start that. Um, that doesn't speak to, are the kids getting enough food? It's very hard to learn to read as it is. Imagine being really hungry, which is a, from my teacher friends and administrator friends, a, an actual reality for lots and lots of kids in our community. It doesn't get to, are there folks, parents in the home with addictions or, or mental health issues and all these things that make it a lot harder to read than like it was for me to learn to read, given, uh, again, the opportunity that I had. No one reason. The goal here is, is our goal to get this right? No. Our goal is healthier. Healthier. So with this in mind, I want to look at a very famous story in the New Testament. It's the parable of the... What am I going to say? What's the one we always go to? Good Samaritan. It's like our number one example for how to do charity. And I want to revisit it and try not to turn your brain off right immediately. Um, because I think that we get some right things out of this. Meaning, show compassion and love your neighbor and you have more neighbors than you realize. I think perhaps we misapply it. And it leads us to some conclusions that I don't think are as helpful or healthy as we think. So let's just briefly, in case you're not familiar with it, Luke chapter 10, if you have a Bible. Religious leader, an expert in the law, comes to Jesus and starts a debate about the law. And Jesus says very famously, here's the two commandments. You boil it all down. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy, thinking he's being clever, says, well, okay then, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So the road from Jericho or Jerusalem to Jericho, it's 18 miles. It 
drops elevation like 3,000 feet. The point is, the further you walk, the hotter it gets, the dustier, the more rocky, the more barren, etc. Traveling in the first century, especially alone, was known to be dangerous. In fact, this road had the reputation for being called the way of blood. And Jesus' audience knew that. Um, so he gets attacked, and they take his stuff, strip him naked, and leave him half dead. They know that when they walk away, he's probably going to die. Sun's going to go down, no food, no water, it gets cold. He's, he's not going to last long. Verse 31, a priest, who by the way was the top of the food chain, wealthy, holy, they had a prestigious job, they had lots of status. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, we're going to come back to that word, he passed by on the other side. And we don't know for sure, but it's not hard to read into this a little bit and imagine that once he saw this guy, he figured out some reason in his mind to not get involved. And maybe he was afraid that the robbers who had obviously done this, maybe they're lying in wait and I'm their next victim. Um, Maybe he thought it was a bad karma thing. God did something bad. He's getting punished. I don't want to interfere with God's crime and punishment deal. And so I'll just let it play out. And we don't know. The fact that he's going away from Jerusalem, he's going down the road, down toward Jericho, means whatever excuse he could have given had he been heading to the temple. For example, I don't want to, this guy might be dead. I don't want to touch. I'll be ceremonially unclean. He can't use that excuse because he's going home. So we don't know what he thought. We do know he saw the man and decided not to get involved. Verse 32, so too, as in, in the same way, along the same road, repeat, so too, a Levite. Levites aren't quite priests, but they're wealthy, they're well-educated, they trace their ancestral line many generations back, they're descendants of a very famous person, Levi. And so they have status, they have all of that. A Levite, when he came to the place, and there's our word again, saw him pass by on the other side. We don't know what he thought, but came up with a reason to not get involved. And then there's this turn, verse 33. But, as in, not in the same way. As in, this is going to be a little different. But, a Samaritan. And Jesus' audience would have been like, What is a Samaritan doing in Judah, near Jerusalem? Because everybody knows Samaritans live in Samaritanville. (laughs) They live in Samaria. And you may know this if you grew up around church. They were part Jewish, but other parts, Babylonian, Assyrian, Persian, they'd been resettled in this area. And so you have Galilee up here. Judah and Jerusalem down here, and in the middle was Samaria. And the Jews didn't like them. They didn't think they worshiped the right way. They weren't allowed in the temple in Jerusalem. They were marginalized. They were outcast. In fact, so much so, anybody traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Galilee would take an extra day, go around Samaria so they don't have to have contact with Samaritans. So Jesus, in his characteristic way, introduces a Samaritan, who, as we all know, is going to be the hero of the story. So he's making this very extreme in their, in their hearing, according to them, on purpose. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And he, when he saw him, he took pity on him. That could be 
Also translated, he was filled with compassion. So all three of these guys see the same thing. The Samaritan has a completely different response. When he sees the man, instead of going through the mental gymnastics of why he couldn't, can't, shouldn't get involved, doesn't do it. And besides, if anyone had a real reason not to get involved, it's probably the Samaritan because he's not in Samaria right now, which means that man lying there is almost definitely Jewish. He has no business getting involved in some ways. But for some reason, he sees the same thing as the priest and the Levite, and he does something different. Maybe it's because he knew what it was like to be left on the side of the road. I mean, his whole people group, figuratively speaking, had been left by the side of the road. Maybe he knew what it was like to be neglected or ignored or pushed to the margins of society. For whatever reason, he got involved. You know the rest of the story. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, two very expensive commodities in the first century. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. It's not just like a couple bucks. It's like a significant sum of money and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And Jesus turns and asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? Meaning, loved this other person as themselves to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Which one acted neighborly? And you can imagine the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. What was that? Come again? Yeah, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So this is a story most of us know about going out of our way to help a person in need with an unexpected act of generosity. It's become so prevalent, in fact, that almost we have all kinds of initiatives. Anything that's geared toward supporting the less fortunate, we kind of attach this phrase. So you have clinics and hospitals and organizations and programs that kind of pick up on this. And all kinds of compassionate work has been done, motivated by this. And again, I think most of that is probably a good thing. The problem, though, is we've made this the model for almost all of our charity. And in doing so, what we end up doing is forgetting all of the other reasons the Bible gives for why poverty exists. And so what, what this means is we've over-relied on this story, and it's a great story. I love it. But in its overuse, we've put it, it's kind of occupied the wrong space in our imagination. And in exchange for a broader more holistic approach, again, especially when you consider the systemic things the Bible talks about, we kind of settle for random acts of charity because we all want to be good Samaritans. So here are a few things that we miss in the traditional telling. Number one, this parable is about the, and these words are all important, comprehensiveness, personal involvement, and risk that the Samaritan took in this effort. Yes, it just so happens that in this case, it's a one-off act of generosity, but it's anything but hands-off. The Samaritan got involved personally. It wasn't I doing this from a safe, insulated distance. It was a transformational encounter that, cost, that crossed ethnic, 
barriers, social barriers, uh, you name it, with a radical amount of generosity that was extended until the person reached full restoration. Which again, that's the goal of shalom. That's God's vision for you, for me, for our neighbors, and for the world. So here's kind of a, a pointed statement. One of the challenges for us is that perhaps too much of our charity is satisfied with bandaging the wounds of the needy, yet leaving them there by the side of the road, vulnerable. And so we donate so that people at the homeless shelter can have a Thanksgiving meal. That's nice. Let's bless people. Let's brighten their day. But the work doesn't stop there. Whenever I'm feeling generous, I go through my closet and I get all the old clothes that are worthless and to me. And instead of throwing them away, I take them, I drive them down to the, to the mission. And that's a good thing. I should keep doing that. But where I kind of get off on the wrong place is I go, I, I'm, really do, I'm really making a huge difference. <laughs> Again, I don't want to be too hard. But are we doing what we think we're doing? I write some checks to organizations caring for the poor, and I, I should keep doing all of that. I just can't walk away from that and think I've done my part fully. Seeking shalom is not work that can be done from a distance or without personal involvement. The whole interaction requires proximity, doesn't it? People I know who are doing this well, think of our friends at Urban Light or or Neil or others who've, I won't start naming names, but they've done this for 20 years where they're trying to love their neighbor as themselves and, and, and learn from and, like a good neighbor, receive things from their neighbors in need and not just give. And they've, they've devoted themselves to proximity, I think, partly because that's the message of this parable. And I just say, that's so challenging to me. I've thought about it for 20 years. And I look at what they're doing and, or what Sean's doing in South Atlanta, and I go, that is undeniably good. Also, I would say, if I'm being honest, either that's just not something that God seems to be calling me to do in this current season. That's possible. That's what I hope, I guess, is happening. Or if it's, I just really like living in my house in Yorktown. I'm not sure which one it is. I'm joking. I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying I wrestle with, with I, what they're doing is so compelling and it's so dignifying and humble and committed and relational. It's like, I want to be a part of that. And maybe in this season, God's calling you and me to help support them, folks doing this kind of, of work that acknowledges the, the systems. Um, you guys gave in Lent, during Lent $26,000 to the Lighthouse uh, Recovery Home for women with addictions. And that's incredible. Please keep being generous. Um, that's an amazing thing, and I think that helps a lot. I'm just, again, asking questions. And I come back to that quote you guys have heard me say from Gustavo Gutierrez. You say you care about the poor. Then tell me, what are their names? What are their names? And I say, I, I want to help, and how can I make a difference? I, I, just, I just notice in me, I'm like, let's give money. Let's start a program. Let's talk about 
grants and all that, and all that is good, and all that has a place, but I just noticed the last thing I really want to do, it seems, is develop a genuine friendship with someone who's different than me. I'll like do anything to avoid doing that, it seems. So this involves risk. It involves crossing social boundaries, economic boundaries, to be personally involved. I don't know what that means for you. I'm still trying to figure out what it means for me. Secondly, and this is maybe the thing I hope we all take away, this is not, this story, is not the be-all, end-all model for everything we do in relation to human need, which unfortunately we sometimes make it that. Back to it's in the wrong place in our minds. We need to distinguish the difference between chronic versus crisis. So let me just ask you, the person lying there beside, beside the road, is that a chronic situation or would you say that's more of a crisis situation? They don't overthink it. It's a, it's a crisis. He was incapacitated and he was half dead, voiceless. It was an emergency situation. Life was in danger. And what's needed when you're in a crisis are the very things for like food, water, shelter, basic survival needs, which is what the Good Samaritan essentially provided. Do you realize that this is actually not most of the time what we're even dealing with? We go down to Nicaragua, and by all, again, comparison, demographics are, are much poorer than, than this community. They're not even treating their material poverty as a crisis because people, by and large, actually have food, and they have shelter. Not always awesome, but they have shelter. Um, by the way, if Jesus had continued the parable, and, he, and it went like this, and then the next day, another man was walking from the road, Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell into the hands of robbers and got beat up, and somebody came and helped him. Another issue, right? Another crisis. And then the day after that, the story goes on. There was a family of four this time, attacked, robbed, beaten. Someone helped him. At some point, we'd be reading that, and we'd go, I'm glad there are people helping these victims in crisis, but maybe, it's crazy, maybe we should do something about that road. Maybe there's something else going on besides this symptom that we keep trying to treat. Most of the charitable work we do is with people in chronic situations. They actually have voices and perspective that we don't have. Their lives are not on the verge of death. They're not helpless. And so we need to, keyword, partner with people towards solutions instead of seeing everyone in poverty like this wounded man lying beside the road. See, what's needed with people in chronic situations is not relief. It's not just food, shelter, water. Beyond that, they need opportunity, transformation, development. These other things that, frankly, take a whole lot more thought and effort and are messier than the crisis response. Where charity often falls short is that charity focuses on the symptoms of poverty, not the cause, not the underlying issues. To use an example from our Seeking Shalom workbook, uh, let's say you've got someone who doesn't have enough food. That's a problem. Food pantry provides food. They have enough food for today, for right now. 
And again, there's a place for that. Uh, please don't mishear me. And we support our friends across the street at Christian Ministries who do this. They have the pantry. We have people who volunteer. I'm not, not trying to critique that. I'm just saying, not only does this long-term not solve the problem, it's worse. When we do relief work, crisis work, when development work is actually what's really needed, we end up harming the very people that we're trying to help and in some ways hurting ourselves. Said another way, anytime we do something for people long-term that they could, with the right tools and resources, do for themselves, we are robbing them of dignity. And again, I think we're doing damage to ourselves and our souls in the process. Most charity work, of course, it's done by people with great hearts who care about people and and I want, I want to celebrate that. They wouldn't do it if they didn't care. I'm just saying that perhaps good intentions aren't always enough. And so what's needed is not charity. What's needed is to address the symptoms. We need a, a broader approach. We need an inside-out, not outside-in approach. So same problem, lack of food, lack of shelter. And what our friends at, at Urban Light CDC or, or again, at Avondale, Thomas Park, what they would say is, there's a whole host of other things. They need strong support network. They need safe, affordable housing. They need a healthy neighborhood. There's the issue of mental and physical health care and access to that. Sustainable employment, wages, and, and around it goes. All of that can lead, I believe, to a much more healthy, I think we're seeing this, holistic, dignifying, and lasting approach. And this right here, <laughs> this is what so much of the scriptures are getting at. And again, it sounds foreign to our ears. When the Old Testament says, when God says, hey, every 49 years, you know what I want you to do? Cancel all debt. It's, I mean, we would vote no on that, most of us, right? Well, I don't know, maybe we would say yes. If it's MasterCard, says they call it, and you have a $0 balance, um, because they had this understanding that, like, this debt is crippling. Every 49 years, all property, however it was forfeited, however you messed up or lost it or whatever your story was, it reverts back to the original owner. Remember what I said earlier about generational wealth and the ability to pass that on? God just goes, reset, and it started over. And I could just go on and on with these specific Sometimes political, sometimes economic, but very real-world, tangible application to achieve the goal or to, to help alleviate the problem. All right. I'm going to land the plane here with this. Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 4, starting off his ministry, and things are going pretty well. And he's going around teaching, and, and there's this line that everybody's like praising him. Everybody is impressed and his, his influence is rising and his, he's like, you know, coming into his own. He's about to make his big, his big move. And he goes into the synagogue of his hometown, as was his custom. So even Jesus went to church. So good job there. Um, he goes there and, and they're like, we have this rabbi. He's got some, some, he's prominent. He's got some growing reputation. Let's let him talk. And so they give him the scroll of Isaiah and Jesus can 
unroll that and read anything he wants to. And this is what he chooses to read. From Isaiah, he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's not what got him in trouble. What gets him in trouble is this next part. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture, which is about our hunger for justice, our hunger for things to be made right in the world, today, beginning with me, this is beginning to be fulfilled. It's fulfilled in your hearing. And then he goes on, apparently, and preaches such a rip-roaring sermon that by the end of it, it says the whole town tried to throw him off of a cliff. So that's what he does with his newfound fame and influence. People matter to God. The things that contribute to a flourishing, healthy society, laws and policies and organizations and economic, it actually does matter to God. Doesn't matter always to me as much because it's, things are kind of working for me as they are. It's not working the same for everybody. We don't all have the same access, voice, opportunity. We read the New Testament and you'll find sometimes it talks about justice and sometimes it talks about righteousness. And we divide it and we say, well, when, it, when it's justice, then it's about the poor, the vulnerable out there. When it's righteousness, it's about in here and my relationship with God and my private personal morality. And I, I just want you to know in the New Testament, in the original Greek, there's only one word. There's one word for justice and righteousness, and every time you see one or the other, it's a translator had to pick which one. Because they're working off of a much bigger vision. Yes, my choices. Yes, my relationship with God. But also, yes, people in need and injustice and marginalization and all these things. It's all tied together. So as you go today, as you leave, um, remember, 25% healthier would be incredible, wouldn't it? Healthier versus right. Transformation, long-term, versus transaction. Systems and structure, not just symptoms that are like a Band-Aid. Um, and so as we leave, and we're just getting this, now we're really getting into it, um, I want you to think about the organizations that you're connected to. And again, I'm sure they're all doing good work. I'm sure lots of good intentions and compassionate hearts. And that's why, you, that's why you're drawn to it. I just want us to begin asking questions. With where we give our money and our time and where we serve, I hope we can get over that word by the end of this. Um, where we serve, um, how are we doing with this stuff? Are we addressing symptoms? And there's a place for that, especially if it's a genuine crisis. If it's not a crisis, what are we trying to accomplish? So I think it'd be helpful and healthy for us just to begin looking around and asking those questions. We're just curious, right? Uh, we're just trying to be open. And the second thing I want us, I'm asking us to do is just come back to where we started. The commandment, the call to love your neighbor as 
yourself. And what I'm trying to do is just run everything through that lens. So everything I think I'm doing out there, I just, I put myself out there for a minute and go, how would that feel? And would I like that? And does that feel honoring and dignifying? And so I'm finding sometimes the answer is no, not so much. Thanks for your grace and patience. Again, if I'm coming in too hot, it's because I think this matters. I think this is really important. I'm trying to learn with you, and I welcome whatever I said that was ignorant, that you want to educate me on. Please do. I want to receive that, and uh, we're, I really mean that when I say we're, we're learning together. Everybody good? Let's stand, and would you pray with me? Uh, first of all, Lord, um, we just thank you again that you invite us to co-create with each other, with you. I'm so grateful that your vision for creation, for the world, for redemptive history, like you actually created this place and like it and called it good. You're not trying to start over somewhere else. You're trying to renew all things. And so to that end, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, Lord, thank you for uh, empowering us by your spirit. I ask that you would give us a, a, a renewed imagination and wisdom to know how to respond. Lord, help us also in this time to not too quickly try to resolve the inner tension that this raises. Help me to sit with it um, and to hear what you, you want us to learn, what you're trying to teach me. So make us humble, help us to be open, help us to be curious. And again, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come more fully on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives, our neighborhood, that you would bring human flourishing for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you all so much. Um, have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday for part three of Seeking Shalom. We'll see you.